0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 270, The Battle of Singapore, Force Z to the Rescue. Last time, the part of the Japanese Operation No. 1 that involved the eventual capture of Singapore, the invasion of Thailand and Malaya, got underway during the early morning hours of December 8th local time. Troops from the Japanese 5th Division landed in southern Thailand and northern Malaya. The idea was for them to fight their way down the peninsula, cross the Johor Strait, and then take the island of Singapore, specifically the naval base there that the British were heavily counting on in regards to an eventual counter-strike. And though no one on the British side thought a victory would be found on the peninsula, There was hope, much like that on Hong Kong, that the defense forces, in whatever state they were in, would be able to hold out for some time. But as we have seen, a lack of political will on London's part, and not possessing a single tank, the Indians, Australians, and local Malayan troops did little to stop the first phase of the invasion. The one solid chance at slowing down the Japanese, the destruction of the ledge, a high wall of rock that hung over the road from Patani to further south, was lost. Grocole, made up of one battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Moorhead, was unable to check the Japanese' southern advance. In short order, the southern Thai city of Patong was left open, while Moorhead and his remaining troops established a new line at the city of Crow, just across the border in northern Malaya. It had not been the propitious beginning that Lieutenant General Arthur Percival, general officer commanding Malaya and Singapore, had hoped for. Backing up a bit, as the Empire of Japan seemed to be looking beyond their war with China, the British Royal Navy made plans to send a proper fleet to Singapore to act as a deterrent. So, five months before Pearl Harbor, the Royal Navy wanted to send out seven, though older, capital ships, one aircraft carrier, and ten cruisers and 24 destroyers as support. Yet, such a fleet would not be ready until March of the following year. But, as they had been doing for some time, the Australians were calling on London for some protection, in the form of capital ships, to place in between themselves and the Japanese, there seemed to be a compromise on the horizon, but neither Churchill nor the Admiralty would back down as to what they thought was best. Each side wanted to send something different. The headbutting went on and on, which did nothing to alleviate Canberra's fears. Finally, in late October, it was decided that the battleship h m s Prince of Wales would be sent to Cape Town, South Africa. Surely by then, a decision would have been reached about its final destination. The Prince of Wales had been a part of the Bismarck chase and self-destruction earlier that year, and being the most modern battleship the British had, it was seen as more than enough to hold back the two Japanese battleships that were believed to be operating in the South China Sea. Of course, it remained to be seen if she could be as defiant against an air attack. By December 2nd, the Prince of Wales had been joined by HMS Repulse, a battlecruiser built in 1916, and five destroyers. And together, they all sailed into Singapore. Force Z, as it was to be called, had arrived. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, Yahoofinance.com. That's Yahoo The arrival of Force C was none too soon. Just four days after it showed up in Singapore, December 6th, three large Japanese convoys were spotted south of Indochina. And on December 8th, reports started coming in, not only of the landings in southern Thailand in northern Malaya. But in other parts of Asia as well, not to mention the attack on Pearl. But what brought it all home for Force Z was that day's bombing in Singapore. The Prince of Wales had been in an anchor at the time, but was luckily left undamaged. So, war had come to Asia for the Western powers. Obviously, the supposed deterrent effect of Force Z had failed. But what to do with it now, London wondered. It was a powerful fleet, though relatively small. Not that London's ponderings mattered much, because Vice Admiral Sir Tom Phillips had already decided on a course of action. Back on December 6th, Admiral Phillips had been in Manila, talking to Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Thomas Hart, commander of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet. The general was telling both admirals that he could not believe personally that the Japanese would attack before March or April of next year, and by then, he would have an army of 200,000 trained men, 256 bombers, and 195 fighters. The naval officers were heartened by this, but had to ask, but what about right now? There was no answer to this, so none was given. Speaking of right now, as British scout planes had recently spotted Japanese ships, Admiral Phillips had decided to take Force Z up the Malayan coast. But knowing his limitations, he asked Admiral Hart if he could borrow four destroyers to go along with him. Hart had just agreed to this when a messenger came into the room. Singapore-based planes had spotted a Japanese convoy off the Thai coast. To this, Hart told Phillips that if he wanted to be aboard his ship when the war started, he'd better leave right now. Phillips was back in Singapore by the morning of December 7th. The British Admiral knew that he was risking Force Z with this sortie, but it was his job to prevent an invasion, and he decided his best bet was to surprise the oncoming Japanese convoy. If he could sneak up the Malayan coast, and the fact that it was monsoon season should help, then he might be able to get into position so that the Prince of Wales' 10 14-inch guns and the 6 15-inch guns of the Repulse might be able to obliterate the enemy convoy and their escorts. Though both vessels were weak in terms of anti-air defense, that's what the four destroyers were for. Too bad there wasn't enough time to wait for the four American destroyers to join them, though. At first, Phillips was going to make for Singora in southern Thailand, but then switched his destination for Kota Baru in northern Malaya, closer to the border. That way, he could still dash a bit further north if he needed to. Phillips estimated he would be at the Malayan port city by the morning of December 10th. Waiting until the sun set on December 8th, Force Z snuck out of Singapore. As would happen time and again, a Western force was about to engage the Japanese with little regard for their abilities or weapons. In truth, the magnificent Zero Fighter went practically unnoticed by the Western militaries for a year and a half before Pearl. The same would be said of the prowess of the Japanese soldiers, sailors, and airmen. And further lowering the estimation of Japanese ability, the British naval officers were basing their expectations on attacks by Italian forces back in the Mediterranean. The thinking went, as long as Force Z stayed 400 miles away from the Japanese bases in southern Indochina, they would be safe as in the enemy escort ships they were soon to come upon, were the ones that should be worried. Soon after leaving Singapore, Admiral Phillips was made aware that their air support would not be forthcoming. The various Japanese attacks throughout the Pacific had stretched British air power to the limit. And that was just in defensive terms. There was nothing left to go on the attack. With no air umbrella, Phillips knew that surprise, which he estimated a fifty-fifty chance, was now even more critical. The good news was that making for the more southern Kota Baru would lessen the time he needed to go undetected. After that, the guns of his two capital ships would, hopefully, settle the matter. At 4 a.m. on December 9th, Phillips turned into some rain squalls to avoid detection. However, the rain and clouds could do what they may. They made little difference to submarines. At 1.45 p.m. on the 9th, the Japanese submarine I-65 spotted Force Z and called it in. The heavy weather had not given Phillips the cloak of invisibility he had hoped for. Even worse, just before sunset, the clouds parted which helped a Japanese aircraft spot and track Force Z at 5.40 p.m. Phillips could guess that Japanese air patrols would locate him sooner rather than later. In that case, the best he could do was hopefully lead them astray as to his true destination. So that same evening, December 9th, at 6.55 p.m., Phillips had his fleet turn from the north to the northwest, then at 7.30 p.m. made another turn, this time to the west, as if he was making for Singora. And though he probably didn't know it because of his lack of land-based air scouts, who could have flown all around his position, the Japanese task force that he was hoping to encounter was only 22 miles north of his position. Thirty minutes later, at 8 p.m., Phillips discussed their current situation with his senior staff. There was only one question to be answered. Should they continue in this operation? For surely the Japanese had to be nearby, and they, unlike the defenders, had, at the very least, land-based planes overhead, having come from southern Indochina. That one piece of information was all it took. Force Z would turn about and make for Singapore. Not quite four hours later, at 11.55 p.m., word came to Prince of Wales that the Japanese had landed at Kwanton about halfway down the Malayan coast. This would turn out to be false, jumpy men overreacting to things seen or not seen in the dark. But as Force Z was only 120 miles away from Kwantan, and their mission was to stop such an event, it had to be investigated. Just before 1 a.m., December 10th, Force Z turned to the southwest. Now, considering this change in destination, and knowing his chief of staff back in Singapore had received the same report as the Prince of Wales, Phillips did not bother asking for air cover as he moved closer to shore, supposedly heading into action. This prudent move should not have been assumed by either side, yet it was. However, both sides may have been thinking, as the closest enemy airstrip was some 450 miles away, Force Z should be safe from above. Still, this is inexcusable. At 8 a.m. December 10th, the sun was up and Phillips' ships were just off Quanton. Yet, all was quiet. To be safe, a scout plane was sent up from the Prince of Wales to check out the situation further inland. But there, too, all was quiet. Now, from this moment on, history has been asking if Quanton was not under attack and Phillips and his staff had already decided that they were in an exposed position, why did Force Z? not raise steam right away, and continue on to Singapore. Perhaps Phillips wanted to wait and keep himself in between shore and the enemy fleet. Or perhaps he was giving too much credence to an earlier report of some barges being seen. Either way, it was clear. The Japanese were not here in force, and hence the only British fleet in the Pacific should Have returned to the relative safety of the large guns of Singapore, yet Phillips would stay in the area another 90 minutes. Just after 10 a.m. that morning, December 10th, someone on Prince of Wales spotted a Japanese plane. It was clear now the enemy knew where Force C was, yet Phillips still did not request fighter cover. An hour later, the first Japanese bombers, were spotted. During the night of December 9th, the Japanese surface fleet had tried to engage Force Z, yet Phillips' various turns had saved his ships from this encounter. However, the Japanese countered this by sending out land based fighters and bombers to have the first crack. Just before the sun rose on the 10th, nine bombers left the Ganzan Air Corps joined by two more reconnaissance planes. But other attack wings were ordered to make themselves ready. By 8 a.m. that morning, a total of 85 twin-engine G3M Nell bombers and G4M Betty bombers had lifted off. 26 of the Bettys had torpedoes, as did 25 of the Nells. The rest would come in with bombs. Going back to the nine Japanese bombers that had taken off first, they made their way to a position just 80 miles north of Singapore, but had not located Force Z. Turning back north just after 10 a.m., they flew over the destroyer Tenadas, which had fallen behind the rest of Philip's ships due to a fuel problem. The nine Nels went after the lone destroyer, but all bombs missed. Hopefully, This was a sign of things to come. The bombers started heading for home when one of their reconnaissance planes spotted Force Z proper near Quantan. The larger bomber group was informed, and just after 11 a.m., their attack got underway. But unbeknownst to the British, it would come in phases as the various patrols had been differing distances away. The first Japanese attack wave came in just after 11 a.m. that Wednesday, December 10th. These planes, indeed all those that would come at Force Z, were near the point of no return in regards to fuel, but they had enough to make one pass. At 11.13 a.m., British lookouts spotted black dots in the sky, and the Marine buglers sounded the call to quarters. When the G3M Nells came within range, and an altitude about 12,000 feet, the gunners opened up. Still, the highly disciplined pilots stayed in tight formation. The bombers let loose several 250-kilogram bombs as they neared. In reaction, the repulse turned hard, first to the starboard, and then to port, and in doing so, made all but one bomb miss. That one hit the ship's seaplane deck from where the planes took off and landed. In that moment, about 24 men died. But still, all things considered, between the limited damage, it was a capital ship, not a carrier, and the number of men struck down, repulse was still very much in the fight. Even better, the ship's crews could see that five of the enemy planes had been damaged on their approach. The Japanese bombers then left the area, as their fuel demanded, while the crews below watched them go with relief. But 20 minutes later, the radar of 4C picked up another 17 G3M Nells. About half of these carried torpedoes. Eight of the planes of this formation broke off and came in just over the waves, going after the flagship Prince of Wales. As they got closer, they finished their attack run in smaller groups, say two or three each, and were by then less than 100 feet over the water. By the time they flew over the battleship, the pilots were claiming that three fish had struck true. The truth was, only two had hit the mark. But it was enough. At 11.44 a.m., the Prince of Wales' outer propeller shaft was buckled, and several compartments were flooded, which caused an 11.5 degree list. Thus, speed was reduced to 15 knots. Also, the ship's main anti-aircraft guns were knocked out. As the torpedo planes left, they saw that the battleship was locked into a pattern of an ugly circle. During this, the nine other torpedo planes had gone after the repulse, but all missed, yet the pilots would go home and claim four strikes. Just after the Repulse's encounter with these torpedo planes, six other planes flew in and dropped horizontal bombs, yet they all missed as well. The third attack wave started at 11.55 a.m. As the Repulse was obviously the less damaged ship, she got the initial attention. Eight torpedo carrying Nels came at her and put down some twenty torpedoes, but the lighter battle cruiser avoided all comers. But then the Japanese changed their tactics. Coming at the repulse from both sides, twenty Bettys came in and spread out their torpedoes, so no matter how she moved, the repulse would be hit. Sure enough, the battleship was struck between two and four times. Some reports said five. Right away, the Repulse took on water, but then came a massive explosion. As one crew member later said, I immediately knew we'd lost Repulse, for within seconds she took on a frightening list to port, so rapid no amount of counter-flooding would save her. True enough, the captain quickly ordered, "'Abandon ship.'" To soothe the wounded pride of his crew, he followed up his order with, You've put on a good show. Now save yourselves. The men began jumping into the water, soon covered in oil. It was a small replica of Battleship Row at Pearl. At 12.23 p.m., the repulse rolled over and sank stern first. Just before she disappeared, her bow was pointing straight up to the sky, as if indicating where her vulnerability had lain. During this anvil attack on Repulse, the remaining six beddies went after the damaged Prince of Wales. As the battleship had no control over her direction, she was hit four times on her starboard side. The crew of the flagship could do nothing but deal with the fires and flooding. So they did. But then came another attack wave, this one comprised of nine bomb-carrying aircraft. Yet these planes went after the three escorting destroyers, who were busy now trying to rescue the blackened men, bobbing among the waves. Fortunately for the rescuers, all bombs missed their targets. Within minutes... The last attack wave came. Seven bomb-carrying planes, and they focused on the crippled Prince of Wales. Only one pilot hit his target at 12.44 p.m., but his 1,100-pound bomb landed in between the stacks and penetrated the main deck. Only then did it explode. The Prince of Wales' speed was reduced to six knots, but it listed to port even more. The captain gave the order to abandon ship at 1.15 p.m. Five minutes later, the Prince of Wales heeled over to port, with many men still trapped below decks. The three destroyers continued searching for survivors. As the last of the Japanese planes left, one of them flashed a signal. In English, it said, We have finished our task now. You may carry on. The Repulse lost 513 men, while 796 were rescued. The Prince of Wales lost 327 men, of which Acting Admiral, Commander in Chief of the China Station, Tom Spencer Vaughan Phillips, was one. 1,285 men from it were rescued, however. As the losses that day were done by air power alone on an open sea, clearly, or at least it should have been, the dreadnought era was over. But much worse, as the British sea power in the Far East was no more, and the RAF would be hit hard soon enough, the onus was now back on the British Army to save Singapore. Back in London Prime Minister Churchill was told of these events on the morning of december tenth local time Churchill later wrote, I was glad to be alone. In all the war I never received a more direct shock. As I turned over and twisted in bed, the full horror of the news sank in upon me. Over all this vast expanse of waters, Japan was supreme, and we everywhere. Weak, and naked. Postscript um, for those of you that are interested, um, Admiral Phillips' um, plaque, for, for lack of a better word, is in Plymouth. It's at the Plymouth Unitary Authority, Devon, England. And just to let you know that the bell from the Prince of Wales, which was raised in 2002, is on display at the Merseyside Maritime Museum in Liverpool. I hope to make it to both. One day.